Today is uh, one of those interesting days when it normally falls during the week, but today it happens to be on a Sunday, and we call it Halloween. And uh, <laughs> I don't know whether you are aware of the background of why this has happened, but tomorrow is what uh, throughout particularly the Catholic world and through most of the Christian world prior to the Reformation, it was called All Saints Day. And there would be a celebration of all those who've gone on before us to heaven and a gratitude for the legacy that they've left behind. You know, we study the lives of great missionaries, people that God has used throughout history, and it's, a, it's really a wonderful, wonderful thing when we have the opportunity to uh, hear the, the incredible stories of how God moves in individuals' lives. So that, that's, that, that's a good thing, to celebrate uh, those who've gone on before us. And, the, and then what happened was is that there would be the evening before they would prepare for All Saints Day, and it was called a holy or a hallowed evening. And so it was intended to be an activity of the church where the church would gather together to pray. After the Reformation, they changed that hallowed evening to uh, Reformation Day. So today in Germany, they're celebrating the Reformation. And uh, what happened when there was a, a reform, it's a wonderful historical uh, story uh, to go through and understand what happened in the, in the lives of people like Martin Luther and Swingley and Calvin and John Knox and the, the reformers of the 16th century and how they used the printed press to uh, get the Bible into the vernacular, uh, which was previously only in Greek or Latin and uh, Hebrew. And so when it, when it was available to people to actually read for themselves, they began to see how uh, the ecclesiastical uh, powers that were not necessarily Christian at all, but were political and greedy and and then they found out that there's no such thing as indulgences in the Bible. And so there was a real uproar. Um, people trying to maintain political power that ended up, unfortunately, in, in wars. But uh, for us, we have a Bible in our language. And we owe that to William Tyndale for the English Bible. Um, we owe it to Luther for the German Bible, and it's interesting that the Germans, following that, ended up translating the Bible into uh, dozens of languages around the world as they sent out missionaries in the 18th century. Uh, they were the first to translate it into Tibetan or uh, Sri Lankan, and I, I could go on, but it's just an amazing thing. So I am excited about um, Reformation Day, because it brings life and hope to a lot of people. How did it become what it has become today, other than being uh, something that people pursue for 
financial gain. It becomes an economic thing. When we first went to Germany, there was no such thing as Halloween. Um, it, right now, it's become another holiday, and suddenly people are sending you greetings. Have a happy Halloween. May it be eerie, and I don't know, all that stuff. The problem with it is this. Let me, I, I don't mind people having fun or kids getting dressed up or I, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with Halloween because it inoculates the non-Christian to think that evil is not really evil. And that's what a vaccination does. It gives you a little bit of something so that when the real thing comes along, you're not afraid of it, you're not scared of it, and, and it can't affect you. And when that happens, the devil is incredibly smart and intelligent to undermine everybody's uh, thinking that evil is not really bad and that this is all just good fun. By the time you have actually encountered evil in its forms, as we have, whether it's in Dachau or whether it's been through uh, massacres that have happened in East Africa, uh, if you have been around people where you get scared because you, you meet them uh, on the street and they're drunk and, and they've got weapons and they'd just be as happy to shoot you as they would to uh, smile at you, I mean, the world is not a nice place. And in the midst of that, we have someone who has conquered the devil, who has conquered sin, who has conquered death, and he gives authority and power to his church to overcome evil, and then there are people out there who are not afraid of what sin can do to destroy individuals and families. I, I don't like Halloween because it starts with the children to train them up to think that evil is not real. And unfortunately, that is not true. Now, I brought all that up, not just because it's Halloween today, and I'm going to tell you what uh, I'm convinced of. <laughs> um, but because when all of this began back in Acts chapter 1, the church was small. The vision that God had for the world, he doesn't want that anyone should, be, should perish, but that all should come to know the truth and have this is what Jesus said, I have not come, you know, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have a life and that more abundantly. He's come with a purpose not to destroy, but to build up. He hasn't come to kill, he's come to give life. He's come to establish us in a positive way, in a healthy way, and he does that through his resurrection from the dead. Now, he has an incredible vision. Last week, we, we read about the vision. He said to the disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be. that Something's going to happen. You are going to be something different than what you are now. What will you be? You will be a witness to the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be witnesses. You will be my witnesses in, this is fascinating, He starts off in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judea. Samaria, which is people who are similar to the Jews, but they worship in a different mountain. They have different, some, they have the same language, but different cultural aspects in it. They live in the same vicinity, but they they don't like each other. Samaria, so you go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. The remotest parts of the earth are people who are vastly different. Different language, different culture, different religion, different uh, uh, food that they eat, different attitudes and how they approach things. And and you you sit down with somebody who's so vastly different to you, you, you sit there and wonder. I mean, there's this one group in in uh, in Kenya um, that if they take something at night and nobody sees that it's being taken then it's not considered to be stolen (laughs) and and so (laughs) but if you don't know that you can hire a guy to be your your guard to guard your house and he just might clean you out if you go away for a few days and you come back and you don't have anything and you're sitting there going, what happened? Well, they never saw anything. But if you went to their house, your guard's house, you would find all your stuff again. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do you, how do you, how do you think that way? You know, it, it, culture can be so radically different. And yet, in spite of the differences, the gospel message will break through every barrier that's there to touch people, to transform them into the image of Jesus. That is an incredible power. Politicians don't have that kind of power. They wish they did, that they could could just speak something and make you follow them. But the truth is, when God starts to move on people's lives, he can change them from the inside out. And the incredible thing is, while he is telling his disciples that this is his vision, that it's going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth, he he has this amazing perspective. It's going to happen, not all at once, but it's going to happen from generation to generation. It's going to happen to every tribe, nation, people, tongue. He's got an incredible perspective, and a perspective that is far greater than anything we could imagine or that we could be involved in. Think about the almost 8 billion people there are in the world today. How many of those people know who you are? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> and then you see that God has a vision that everybody's supposed to hear of this incredible ability that God has to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the works of the devil in your life, destroy the works of the devil in their lives, 
to destroy the works of the devil wherever they can be found. He has the authority and the power to do so, which is absolutely astonishing. And he turns around and he leaves them, ascends into heaven and is enthroned, not in one of the kingdoms of this world. You see, that we tend to think of kingdom in terms of a political power. And the disciples thought that too. And so they're watching Jesus ascend to heaven to where he is going to be enthroned as the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, the regent of all regents. (laughs) And the angels come down and say, why are you just staring with open mouths looking up into heaven? Don't you know that Jesus will come again? That's what we call the second coming In the same way that he went up, he will return one day. And the church has great hope and excitement about that. The only thing is that when that happens, people won't be able to be saved afterwards. It's only beforehand that people can come to know the incredible deliverance and hope that comes from knowing Jesus. Now, Jesus told them to go back and stay in Jerusalem until they had been endued with power from on high. He said, whatever happens, you need to go to Jerusalem and you need to stay there. So the next portion that we're going to read in Acts deals with the 10 days from the ascension until the day of Pentecost. Now, they have no idea that it's going to be 10 days. They don't know whether it's going to be one day, whether it's going to be three months, whether it's going to be a year. They just know that until something happens that's never happened before, we have to stay in Jerusalem. And so they're coming back into Jerusalem. I love this because they have just seen Jesus ascend to heaven and now they're going back to Jerusalem and they're going to do some waiting. Interesting, isn't it? They have to get into a position of expectation of what God is going to do. Let's turn to Acts uh, chapter 1, and we'll begin um, at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all were one mind, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons uh, was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus." For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open 
in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's take a look at the surrounding, the setting that this takes place in. The first thing is that these guys didn't take off and head back to Galilee, but they actually did what Jesus told them to do. In other words, they were obedient. The first thing after seeing Jesus ascend to heaven is that they went back to Jerusalem and went back to the upper room and it's interesting that they list the disciples there all except Judas Iscariot, who's not listed, but it's the same list from uh, Luke chapter 6. Then he goes on to say that the other people that are there, numbering about 120, include the women. Those are the women who followed Jesus from Galilee that were there in Luke chapter 8 and were also present at the crucifixion. These were also some of the women who went to the tomb, uh, to see the stone rolled away. And, and you have uh, a group of others, probably uh, many of the 70 from, uh, from Luke chapter 10, that on Jesus, well, he was on his way to Jerusalem, sent them out to go to all the villages and towns that he was going to visit on his way to Jerusalem. So now we, we come up with about 120 people that are in the upper room and they are all being obedient, first of all, to what Jesus had said. The second thing is, this is fascinating to me, is that they were united in prayer. They were in one accord. They, what were they doing primarily in this room? They were praying. The only prayer that is recorded was the last one where they pray that God will bless them with a 12th person that they need to fulfill the the vacated place of Judas. But, but the interesting thing is that they're going to spend 10 days primarily not talking to one another, but talking to Jesus and to God the Father. I wonder how many of us take time to wait on the Lord like that. How many of us have been caught up with such enthusiasm for prayer that it engulfs us for days. And it doesn't get tired or doesn't wear out. 
Whether they fasted or not, we don't know. It could be that the women who fed them all along that route, that those were women that helped take care of them as well. But the, the interesting thing is that they were all included in this event of expectation that God is going to do something and they are waiting upon God in worship and in prayer. The third thing is, and I, I love this, you, you, you know, I, I'm sitting there thinking to myself um, how easy they were struggling prior to this time. They struggled with each other about what are we going to do. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, and he heads off to the sea to go fishing, and, and the others are, are scattered uh, during the crucifixion, and, and some were sitting there wondering about what, what is, when is Jesus going to establish his kingship, when is the Messiah going to re, uh, sit on the throne of David and let the kingdom of Israel rise again, and, and, and they're sitting there with all these different theological, political different issues that they're struggling with, but when they come back to this prayer room, they're in one accord. I, I find that to be a really important aspect of what church life is supposed to be. Unity, as we're studying in, uh, in Ephesians, is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all think alike and do the same things and like the same food and, and uh, have the same manners. But what it does mean is that there is an underlying gird that, of a yearning to want to know who Jesus is in his resurrection. All of them believe. Remember, it wasn't just a few days before that Thomas says, unless he actually shows up, I'm not going to believe. But now they all believe that Jesus is alive from the dead. They have unity about the ability of Jesus to conquer sin. They believe that Jesus is greater than the devil who crucified him. They believe that Jesus has more power than any of the political powers of the world of that day. They're unified in things that they have come to understand in the resurrection of Jesus. The last thing is that they, they realize that there are some practical issues that they're going to have to deal with. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this this morning, but I find it absolutely fascinating that in, in the, initial, the initial time where the first church is gathering together, that they are uh, realizing that there are administrative duties that they've got to take care of. <laughs> and it's fascinating to me to see how they're going to realize that. And then I, I, I look at that through the rest of the Acts, and I see that at different times and different places there are different ways in which they come to uh, decisions that are being made in order for the life of the church to be pursued. But they find a way to do it. There is something about a relationship with Jesus that when you're saying, 
Lord, I don't know what to do. Help us. And that's basically what that prayer is. God, please direct us. Now, I don't know what it, what they did when they cast lots. I don't know whether it was like they wrote down their, their name on a piece of paper and put it into a like a voting thing, or maybe they, they pulled straws. Um, I, I have no idea how they did it. It just says that they cast lots. And when they did that, they, they came to decide that it must be Matthias. In Switzerland, that name is Mottias. <laughs> That's how they pronounce it there. We had a missionary by the name of Mottias. And, and I, I, I tried to call him Matthias, and he goes, no, no, no. <laughs> The, the fascinating thing to me in, in all of this is that um, even today there are people who still say, we don't know how this is going to work, and so I'm just going to trust God, I'm going to pray and, and hope that something happens. You know, um, the, the Moravians, there are several Moravian communities, there's one here in in Wilmington, and the big one is up in Winston-Salem. They even have uh, God's Acre, which is a cemetery there. Um, fascinating history of the Moravians and what the work that they did. Uh, you might be interested that it was Samuel Nietzschman who was on the ship with John Wesley coming over from Europe to North Carolina, and John Wesley was a failure in his missionary activity, and the Moravians were very successful. And he went back to England, and when he got to London, he found a Moravian community in London. And it was while he was there that God moved on his heart uh, in a lecture on Romans. And I look at the impact that Samuel, this one Moravian missionary who ended up establishing Bethlehem in Pennsylvania, a city up there, um, that this guy coming over on the ship had an impact on a man who established the whole Methodist movement. And, and it's just incredible the kind of impact that these guys, that these guys had. Um, and I, I look at, at what the Moravians do is that every year they go through and pull out Bible verses. Uh, the elders in the church in Herrenhut uh, get together and they pull Bible verses out. Uh, and you get a Bible verse per day and they put together for every year, they, they put together a, uh, a, a book of meditation and prayer <laughs> uh, following the uh, Bible verses that they have selected by lot. And uh, it's fascinating to hear testimonies even today, by the way that they do that. Well, I'm not too sure what this was, but they do find a way to solve an issue to make sure that they still have 12, which is the number of apostles and the number of tribes in Israel. And so they're, they're and the way that they do that is that they, they turn like Jesus did to the scriptures. And they look first at Psalm 69, and then they look at Psalm 55, and in both of those Psalms, they come up with a reason for why they have to uh, put in another one. Uh, that's in Psalm 55, 23, 
And in Psalm 69:25, it says um, what we quoted there about uh, Judas having gone his way. Now, this wasn't just a party that they were having for 10 days. This is a critical and serious event. What they are doing is getting ready for the greatest movement that the world has ever seen. And not only has Jesus selected 12 to be the leadership of this movement, but he has a group of faithful, just think, there's more here this morning than the 12 that Jesus trained. It's interesting that there were at least two that had been with Jesus as well from his baptism until his ascension had been there the whole time. And they could actually find two who had been there who hadn't been selected to be a part of the inner circle. And yet, here we go with this group that has been, they've, they've wrestled with issues and the resurrection and, and why did it happen like this? They were struggling with trying to understand the Old Testament and how is this a fulfillment of the Old Testament? How is God's work involved in this? And, and in the presence of all of this, Jesus has given them a vision of what he wants to have happen. So the first thing that we're going to look at is that it's God's vision. This is not something that man had worked out. This is God's intention, his will, his plan, and his purpose that the gospel should be preached to every nation and that people who repent are going to be saved and that they will have an eternity with God. This is God's intention. It's God's grace. It's God's will. It's God's plan. It's God's purpose. As incredible as it sounds, he comes to a group in Jerusalem of 120 people, and he gives them the most incredible task and I can imagine them sitting there thinking, how in the world can we do it? We don't have great administrative abilities. We haven't got a lot of money. We haven't got the workforce. We haven't got this. We haven't got that. I can imagine that they're looking at their inadequacies and saying, how can this happen? Hey, take a look at us. How can God move here in West Pender County in order to establish a movement of his spirit so great that all the churches are going to be filled? Now that would be a vision, wouldn't it? <laughs> Let's have these buildings used for the purpose for which they were built. <laughs> Let's have them become places of prayer. Let's be excited for all the preachers and, and all of the the people that are gathering in the name of Jesus, let's be excited and let's not miss out. Let's not just pray that God's going to do it there. Let's have God do it here and there. You think he's not big enough? He's got a vision, not only for Jerusalem, but for Judea and Samaria and all the people who are unlike us. 
who are different economically, whether richer or poor, whether they look like us or not. See, God is, is not a respecter of persons like that. His yearning is that his creation should bow before him and receive his great gift that he has for them. Now, all these people, I want you to understand, they believed that Jesus was alive from the dead because they're being obedient to the one that they had seen go to heaven. Are you with me? <laughs> they're doing what he says because that's what's happened. And now they're praying with an expectation of what it is that's going to happen without a clue what that's going to be. So the first thing is that they have to be convinced that this is a vision that God has given to them and that somehow God is going to do it. The vision begins when I start by looking upward. Imagine the disciples there watching Jesus ascend into heaven and they're looking upward and they have seen Jesus go up to his enthronement. Paul says, that he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of the Father. I mean, he's on the throne. He has received the authority. He's received it all. Now, when I begin to look up, something ought to happen in my life similar to what happened in... Uh, Isaiah's life. In the year that King Uzziah died, the, you see, the king had died. All the other kings in this world that we place above God, that we place above Jesus, they need to die. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. When we come to the place that we want to see the king high and lifted up and that our yearning is that here, here is the one in whom all power and authority in heaven and earth has been placed. I'm not too sure. My, my wife used to be a royalist. Something happened. She's British. Okay, so she, she used to be a real fan of of the queen and the queen's family, and she knew all about them. <clears throat> it, it, somehow that's soured a little bit <laughs> yeah, for some reason. It, it, but in the, in, the, in the process, to be invited to, the, to Buckingham Palace for tea with the queen, what an honor. And, and what happens if she were to take out a sword and, and place it on my shoulders? And then you'd have to call me Sir Pastor. <laughs> that is so silly, isn't it? I mean, that, that is just downright funny. I, 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 the truth is, there is no monarch like Jesus. And he invites us to his table. The interesting thing is that he invites people that are like us and he invites people that are not like us. 
He invites people we understand and he invites people we haven't got a clue about. <laughs> I we had a, an issue with missionary in an African country and, and the, uh, I won't tell the story. We begin to look upward something begins to happen in the presence of this almighty God. And that's when you start to look inward. You see, when they got together to pray, it's not just a matter of looking upward and saying, whoa, what an incredible, amazing event we have witnessed. But the minute that you look at your life in relationship to the life of the one who is exalted far above heaven and earth, Isaiah's response was, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. The response that comes when I begin to gaze upon the one who has conquered death, who has conquered evil, who has conquered and is victorious over all. My response has got to be, Lord, cleanse me. My response is that the light illumines the darkest parts of my hidden life. The things that I've tried to keep secret are no longer hidden, but the presence of God reveals them. Not to destroy, but to heal. Not to embarrass, but to get rid of. In the powerful presence of an almighty God, my first reaction is that I look inward and say, God, do something in my life until I have an hatred of evil and of sin, particularly in my life, I will never understand the power of the grace of God to redeem and to forgive, to buy back and to purchase my life. And so I begin to see something that happens on the inside of me because I have placed my eyes upon one who is far greater than anything this world could, could know or understand. And as I begin to take a look inwardly, the vision of what I see is that God loves me with an intense love that I can't fully comprehend. But I gratefully, gratefully receive. And the forgiveness that begins to flow and the cleansing on the inside and the, the purity of the feeling of God's presence is one of the most amazing things. And suddenly these disciples in all of their quirks and all of the stuff we've looked at that they, we, we've looked at them we're saying, how can they be so silly and so stupid? And, 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 and they've walked with Jesus and they've been up on the mountain when, when he was glorified and, and they saw Moses and they saw Elijah and oh my goodness how do they behave like this my good friends that's how we behave and as God loved them he loves us too 
And in the presence of God, as I begin to see that he wants to cleanse the inside, he is preparing me for something. He's making me ready for his vision to be fulfilled. This waiting for 10 days of prayer, of looking upward and looking inward, is because when God comes down to us looking outward at the ones that he loves, we identify with the love that he has for those that are not like us. Not to destroy, but to build up, to forgive, to love. You see, that's, that's the things is that he not only is going to give us a vision, he's going to give us the means whereby that vision can be fulfilled. That happens when he endues us with power from on high. But they had to be ready for it. They're ready for it. Why? Because not only are they looking upward and inward, they're expecting something to happen that will move them outward. The means, though, is that God not only has the vision, he is going to accomplish it with his power. And then comes the last one. The last one is, what's his method? Well, his method, my friends, he has a method how he's going to accomplish this vision. <laughs> and that method is you and me. We are his method. And so that's why it's so important that we get ready, we get set in our new ways as the children of God before the go comes. The preparation is, you, you watch that at the Olympics, right? They, they get ready, <laughs> get set, <laughs> and then you get the shot that says go. The preparation is important. The time, not just these 10 days, but in these 10 days, they're examining what's happened over the last three and a half years. They're seeing how Jesus fulfilled the scripture. That's why they used the scripture to fulfill the 12th place. You see, they're, they're, they're starting to learn something about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies, and now they are going to be the fulfillment of the next season of God's prophetic movement throughout history in the world. The incredible thing is it doesn't happen by great events or special things. It happens one-on-one. -on -one. You see, Philip's on his way, just walking and there's a guy stops on a chariot and says, what you reading? He says, I'm reading Isaiah, don't understand it. And he gets into the chariot and starts talking to him. And he says, well, there's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? <laughs> Next thing you know, there's a movement of God in Ethiopia. You, you, you see, the, the events that take place happen because God uses ordinary people who love him and are obedient, who are available 
to being filled with the power of His Spirit to touch people who will touch people who will touch people. And that includes each one of us. If God's going to reach this community, He's going to reach it because you are here. If God's going to fill this church and the other churches round about, it's because He's going to use you. It's because you've had a period of time of looking up, letting God deal with whatever prejudice is in your heart and mind, how to change your vocabulary, how to change your heart, how to change your thinking. And then you put the priorities right because you put sin aside. And you say, Lord, here I am, use me. Here I am, send me to my neighbor. Here I am. How can I be a part of what you're doing? The, the vision has never changed. It's still Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We happen to be in the remotest parts of that earth. But it just starts all over again. Makes Burgal, our Jerusalem, Pender County, our Judea, North Carolina, our Samaria. <laughs> And the ends of the earth are still part of us. That's why we pray for the Takali people in Nepal. That's why we are praying for the missionaries in Haiti. You see, because we're, we're unified together in this incredible vision and movement of God by the Spirit. The need that you and I have is that we need to be open to looking upward and letting the vision of the resurrected Christ so impact us that when the light shines on things on the inside of our life that aren't right, that we say, God, use your power to cleanse that, transform me on the inside. Lord, I need your help because I can't do this. I've tried and I've failed, but I need you to come in and to encounter my weakness with your strength. I need you to encounter my inability with your ability. I need you to touch me where I can't change. Deliver me, set me free so that I can be a willing and useful vessel in the kingdom of God. Until we've looked upward and looked inward, we're not going to be very effective looking outward. It becomes tasks rather than the excitement of seeing God move as a result of our obedience to walk in him and do things that he asks us to do that are just normal things. But he uses normal things for us to do mighty things in the lives of others. What is it in your life that hinders God from using you 
in fulfilling that outward vision? Do you need a new time of coming before God, looking upward, so that his light can not just illumine, but cleanse and heal the parts on the inside that still need to be cleansed and healed? And when he does that step by step, that's where we become effective effective tools in his hands where the vision and the means and the method all come together to see God's kingdom expand in our world. We thank you, Father, that as we gather here, you have chosen each one of us to be a part of a church that is dynamic, exciting, adventurous, strong in faith, weak in sin, willing to move forward, to see the kingdom of God expand through language barriers, through culture barriers, even in our area. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us a time of waiting on you so that the vision that we see is going to be you high and lifted up, exalted above all things, and that we would gain strength in that to overcome the issues in our lives that we have buried so that we can be effective in sharing your life with others. Lord, we pray that you would move upon us by the power of your Spirit as well in a waiting period where we ask you to come and do a new thing in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. We want to uh, sing our hymn of invitation number 294. And you are more than